Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But uh, in any case, you have uh, 2 Samuel open chapter 11. You know, we looked at a high point in David's life just just last week. A high point, what I think may be the highest point of David's life, when he reaches out to a descendant of Saul and the son of Jonathan in order to be a blessing to Mephibosheth. He was being faithful to his promise to both Saul and Jonathan, whom he had said he would protect any of their descendants. And so now that he's on the throne and there is a period of rest, he's reflecting on his promises. And so he inquired, is there anyone in Saul's household? Is there anyone who is a descendant of Jonathan, his good friend, that he could show chesed, loving kindness, the mercy of God to? And uh, he learns that there is an individual named Mephibosheth. And David uh, takes Mephibosheth, brings him into his own household, tells him, you're going to eat at my table. And the servants or the the sons of Ziba and the servants of Ziba are going to work Saul's land, which you have inherited. And therefore, it is all your land will all be given to you. And so this is a great moment in David's life where all these good things are given to Mephibosheth, even as he exhibits a kindness, a love, a mercy, uh, the word grace, an unmerited, unearned, unable to repay kind of favor that Mephibosheth receives from David. But then we turn just a couple of chapters later to chapter 11, and we hit what might very well be the lowest point of David's life. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. And what transpires as he is lured into sin. And so, you know, oftentimes when I have spoken with uh, Jewish people, but not just Jewish people, all kinds of people, um, there is this sort of resistance to the idea of sin. What is that? You know, uh, that's your opinion that this is wrong and should not uh, be observed or should be practiced. But when we get to a passage like this, it becomes very clear that there are standards that God has established in his word, standards that are expected to be observed by kings as well as servants, by masters as well as slaves. All social entities, all classes of people are to be responsive to the standards God has set. And so David, 
though he is a man after God's own heart. David, though he shows incredible grace to Mephibosheth. David, who fulfills his promises to Saul and uh, to Jonathan. David, who is the king of Israel, does not go unscathed when he, like anyone else, would walk contrary to the nature or to the commands of God. So let me read for you uh, this portion in Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened... Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David that I am pregnant. What an incredible manifestation of events. What an incredible way to write this. Look how he begins. He says, in the spring of the year, that's supposed to attract our attention. Kings are in battle during the spring. The winter season is over. The movement of troops is easier. And now you go into battle in order to secure your borders. The point here is David is not where he ought to be. David ought to be with his troops. He sends Joab, the captain of his armies, out with all Israel, all his men. But David remains back in the palace. And so in a sense, there was a lazy streak in David. There's a sense in which David was not fulfilling his responsibility as the king of Israel. And if anyone ought to be out there, it ought to be David. He's always been out there. He's always led in the confrontations that took place, but not this time. And so I find it interesting that oftentimes when sin sort of crouches at the door, it's because we're, we're not where we are supposed to be. We're not engaged in the proper experiences or the, the proper things of our life that we ought to be doing. And so David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. He walks out on the uh, rooftop, and of course in ancient Israel, oftentimes the rooftop, there were doorways that opened to it, because especially in Jerusalem, it can get very warm in the summertime as a way to bring in some cool air, and the king of Israel, David, is on the rooftops. I'm not certain Bathsheba is completely innocent either. I mean, there she is bathing on the rooftop. You know, she might have been a little bit more uh, circumspect about where she ought to be. Remember, her husband's away. He's in battle. So perhaps she, too, has a fault to be considered. It's not to say that she may have been doing this to lure anyone. We don't really know. But certainly she's not going to be able to refuse the king of Israel. And certainly not David. It's also interesting that the text tells us that she was very beautiful. You know, so obviously she was extremely beautiful. You know, and the text takes a moment to describe for us how an individual particularly looks. It's taking some, uh, you know, she, the text could have just said, 
there was a woman, Bathsheba, who was out on, on the rooftop. But no, she was very beautiful. And so you get, you get a thought, you, get, you wonder. She knows she's a beautiful woman. Why is she out there like this? Here's another interesting thing about this. You know, when you read about David's mighty men, well, Eliam, her father, is named as one of David's mighty men. And by the way, Uriah the Hittite, to whom Bathsheba is married, is also one of David's mighty men. So it's very possible he was a bit older than she was. And that might be why the text is saying she was very beautiful and the implication being and she was very young. And so David sees her. And David sends for her. And David goes to her. And they have sexual relations. And then she finds that she is pregnant. She tells David. And now you would think, okay, what do you do about this? What happens when one sin is found out? Well, there's two choices. Either you confess that sin, you bring it on the table, and you deal with it openly like that, or you hide it. And you try to get away with what had just transpired. David, unfortunately tries to hide what he has done. And this leads him into a series of additional sinful activities that makes his life even more miserable. So if you look at verse uh, 6 or so, it says, So David sent word to Joab, and he says, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Now you got to think, Joab is not a fool. Right? He's got to be thinking, why does David want Uriah? What does he want with him? He's here in battle. And he must have thought, Uriah has a very beautiful wife. He knows David has many wives and many concubines. And he knows David in and out. I suspect Joab knew something was up. He doesn't know all the details yet, but he had to be thinking about why would David want, you know, Uriah to come back home? And knowing the kind of man David could be passionate in a lot of spheres, that perhaps something is going on. And there might have been a question mark in Joab's mind. So David tells Joab, verse 7, that he wants Uriah. So when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So here's his first cover-up. David's not interested in what's going on in the battle. If he was, he'd be out there. If he was, he'd be going. No, he is sort of distracting Uriah. He wants to take Uriah's mind off of what is really on David's mind. And what's on David's mind is he wants Uriah to think that David is giving him a particular reprise, a little vacation from the battlefield. He wants him to come home. He wants him to spend time with his wife. And he figures he's away, we don't know for how long, but a considerable amount of time in battle. And now he has opportunity to go home, sleep in a nice bed, have a nice warm meal, perhaps have some wine and enjoy his wife. But Uriah is a good man, and he's a person of character. So when David sends Uriah to his home, Uriah leaves the palace, but he ends up sleeping outside with David's servants in the servants' quarter. 
And when David finds this out, he brings Uriah back to him. And he says to Uriah, why did you not go home to your wife? He's hoping that he'll go home with his wife, have sexual relations with her, so that when the child is born, Uriah will think it's his child. And then everything is okay. But Uriah's not cooperating. He's not going home. And he says to David, how can you expect me to go home when my troops are out in the battlefield and the Ark of the Covenant, God himself, doesn't have a home yet? And while the ark is outside, and while my men are outside, I'm staying outside, and I'm not going to enjoy the things that I could otherwise enjoy while, while my men cannot enjoy them. So now David's got a serious problem. He can't get Uriah to cooperate. So what does he do? He gets Uriah drunk. He has him eat at his table. He says, oh, you got to try this French I don't know, I was going to say seven yawn, you know, you know, whatever year it is, I don't know. But in any case, he's telling you, you got to try this, you got to try that. And before long, Uriah is drunk. Now David thinks he's got him. So he tells Uriah, go home to your wife, enjoy the evening. But when he gets outside, he's not so drunk as not to be thinking about his troops and not thinking about his men. He stays outside again. Now David doesn't have much recourse. He could come clean at this point. It's a little worse than it was. He lied to Uriah. He tried to deceive Uriah. He got Uriah drunk. And he took an important man from the battlefield from Joab. And he left the troops that Uriah were commanding without his leadership. So there's quite a um, listing of sins that have occurred. But no, David doesn't come clean. So what does he do? He sends Uriah back to battle. But this time he gives Uriah a note. Isn't this amazing? He knows Uriah will not look at that note. I mean, you got to figure, wouldn't you be curious? You know, what did he write? But no, Uriah's a good man. He told me, to do, the king told me to deliver this to Joab. It gets to Joab. Uriah never looks at it. Can you imagine if he had what he would be thinking about the king? That he has served all these years as one of his foremost mighty men of valor. When he gets to the line of battle, he gives the note to Joab. And the note tells Joab from David to bring Uriah and his troops into the heat of the battle. Bring them right up to where the battle is raging the worst. And then withdraw the troops, but leave Uriah exposed. So now he's plotting a way to kill Uriah so that his sin does not have to be exposed. Now Joab knows what's going on. He may have suspected before, but now he knows. He knows Uriah's wife. He knows the kind of man David is. And he could not think of any other reason why David would want one of his mighty men, one of his close associates that's been with him when he was running from Saul, as well as building up the land, the nation of Israel. And he now knows what's going on. I'm certain of it. But Uriah is put into the heat of battle. The men are withdrawn. And Uriah dies. 
Joab sends word to David of what has just transpired. And he tells the messenger, make sure you tell David that when he gets angry, because he will know that I had made a blunder, uh, a strategic blunder of bringing the troops so close to the wall of battle that the archers up on the walls could easily fire down on my men. You don't come right up to the walls until you've broken down a means of getting into the city. And so Joab says to the messenger, make sure that when you tell David the battle went bad and a number of people were killed, make sure that you tell him among them was Uriah the Hittite. And that will ease up David's anger. So sure enough, the messenger goes back to David. David is irate that Joab would bring the troops close to battle, close to the walls of the city. And then the messenger tells him, oh, and by the way, Uriah is dead. When you look at the end, the last verse of this chapter, it's, and by the way, Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband. And David quickly marries her, and brings her into his harem. But at the end of the chapter, it says, And when the morning was over, David sent, brought Bathsheba to his home. She became his wife and bore him a son. But here's the important phrase. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so while his sin may have been masked from most, I don't think it was masked from Job, but while it was masked from most, was not masked from God. The Lord saw. So in chapter 12, means he was aware, he knew what was going on from beginning to end. And when you look at chapter 12, it says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. I think that's really neat. The Lord sent Nathan to David. I think oftentimes, you know, what happens in our sphere, if we don't like what we see going on in someone's life, we oftentimes go to them and we tell them, you ought to be cautious about this, you ought not to do that. We sort of say things like that. I think it's important to note here that Nathan did not just go on a whim. He went because God sent him. And he was very conscious that God was the one orchestrating what was transpiring. He did not take it upon himself to bring before David what was told to Nathan or God revealed to Nathan what had happened. God sent him. So we have to be careful how we confront one another because we need to be sent by God. And even when we are sent, we need to be cautious, even as Nathan was. Remember, he's the prophet of Israel. He's coming to the king of Israel. He could have just laid it out and said, Nathan, God spoke to me. He could have said, David, God spoke to me. And he told me what you had done with Uriah. That would have freaked David out. How did you know? Maybe he would have thought there were conspirators in the palace that that made it aware to Nathan. But one way or the other, Nathan could have just gone straight ahead, barreled in and said, what you did was wrong. But Nathan has a lot, is a bit more savvy than that. He's cautious. This is the king. But he also is concerned for the king. And he's not looking merely to attack him, but he's looking to bring about repentance. That's what God is after. And so Nathan comes to him, and he tells him a story. He doesn't say this is a parable. or this is a, He just tells him there is a certain man. He presents it as a fact. This has occurred. 
And he says, you look at verse 2, there, was, there were two men in a certain city. The one was rich, the other was poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I don't know how much I can tell you about my personal life, but we have two dogs, Dylan and Fenway. Now, some online, probably the moment I said Fenway, Red Sox fan, they just turned it off, especially if they were from New York, right? <laughs> but we have two Cavalier King Charles, and, they, and, and those of you who have animals as pets and are really good human beings, <laughs> really good human beings, you know these animals are part of your family, right? They're part of your family. And you love them, right? And don't you feed them some of you know, like you have dog food or whatever, but come on, it's my dogs, man. They can't just eat Alpo. We got to throw in, you know, some of uh, whatever it was we made. And if it was tri-tip, Mary hides it. You cannot give them the tri-tip, you know. But whatever it is, you know, we put in a little something, right, to flavor it up because we love them so much. And now I, I can confess this. I've never had one of my dogs drink out of my cup. That's never happened. I'm telling you, that's never happened. They may have t- taken my cup and gone off somewhere with it, but I've never just, here you go. You know, that's never happened. But yes, my dogs sleep in our bed with us, you know. And we lo- but this is what he said happened with this man and his lamb, Right? And so Nathan goes on and says, there was a traveler. There came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, you know, now David is completely objective, right? Completely objective. And so he, he is angry. Think about this. He's angry over a mistreatment of an animal. Now, David was a shepherd. So there's no doubt there was some sheep among the sheepfold that he's, I like this sheep a little bit more than that one, you know. And maybe he took care of that one a little better. Who knows? But he got really angry. And then it says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Oh, my goodness. Right? It's not like he killed somebody. You know, he just took his lamb. But he says he deserves to die. But look at this. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, that's really interesting because the law, which shows us David knew the law. Because the law does say that when you take something that doesn't belong, when you've stolen something, you need to restore it fourfold. So here's another interesting thing. David was a man of the word. But so often we know the word, but we don't apply the word to our own lives. You know? So here he had just lied. He just covered up. He just committed adultery. He had just committed murder. He knows the word says, thou shalt not commit murder. He knows he shall not covet your neighbor's wife. He must know that if he knows you restore somebody's thing that you took fourfold. That's a lot more obscure, you know? It's not one of the Ten Commandments. He knows this, but he's not willing to live it. And with that, that opens the door for Nathan to make it known to David 
Three, four words. Each of them has only three letters. You are the man. I mean, you know, he doesn't have to say much more than that, except I'll talk to you later, you know, and get away as quickly as possible. He says, you are the man. And Nathan goes on, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. If that wasn't enough, you know, Dianu, Passover is coming up. It is sufficient. But no, God did more than that. Not only did I anoint you king over Israel, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. But not only that. I gave, you, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to you even much more. You know, God loves us. God loves David. And he's saying, why couldn't you be honest with me? Why can't you be open with me? Why couldn't you shuv, return to me and repent of this sin rather than attempt to hide it out? But you know, this is the story of humanity. What happened in the garden? Adam and Eve, they sinned. And what do they do? They hid from God. And the first question in the Bible, God asked, where are you? Not that he didn't know where he is any more than he didn't know what David did. But he says, where are you? And David and Adam says, I am, I'm, I'm hiding. You know, and here we have a similar kind of thing, a hiding. But like Adam, he knew that his hiding kept him devoid of his relationship with God and his heart was emptied. David knows the same thing. It appears on the surface, David's in control, right? He's taking care of Bathsheba. He's married to her. He's taking care of Uriah. He's gone. He's taking care of all the circumstances, he thinks he's in control. But you know, inside, David was falling apart. Sin eats at our lives and out of our heart. How do we know that? I want to show you two Psalms. Look at Psalm 34. Think about what David had done. Uh, Excuse me, Psalm 32. We read Psalm 34. We sang it. You know, let us exalt his name together. But Psalm 32, David writes this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered by the grace of God. I mean, 32, Psalm 32. He says, blessed is the man. First verse, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What is David saying? I knew what it was like when my sin wasn't forgiven. I knew what it was like when my sin was not covered by the grace of God. I knew what it was like when I was trying to hide my sin from him. And it tore me up inside. So blessed. I'm glad I could put this on the table, bring it before him, confess my sin and say, Lord, forgive me because he will forgive me. He's the one who gave me the kingdom. He's the one that gave me both Israel and Judah. He's the one who fulfilled all his promises. How much more will he give us if we ask? Forgive us of our sin. That's what we need. And David is saying right at the front end, there is nothing like being forgiven. Isn't that true with one another? There's nothing like it. When someone says, look, I don't even account. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to reflect on it. I'm not going to mention it. You're never going to hear me say anything about that event ever again. That's freedom. That's acceptance. That's deliverance. And David says, it's a blessing. 
There's no other expression to give it. Look what he says. When uh, for, and this is why it's such a blessing. Look what he says in verse three. For when I kept silent, when I tried to hide it, look what he says. My bones waxed away. Oh, no one else saw it. But inside, I hurt big time. So much so that the only way I can describe it, it was like a deep ache that will, can't be rubbed out. And there's no deep heating rub that's going to address. If you have a backache and you put that stuff on there, and then after a little while, it's like, wow, this is great. If only I could live with this stuff, you know, just, <laughs> just smear it on. But David is saying, my bones, not just ached, they waxed away. They melted within me. I was in so much inner pain. Not only that, look what he says. And I just could groan all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. God cares about you. And he cares about our sin. And God isn't just going to say, you know what? Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. I'm not going to think about it. No, God wants us to think about it with him to gain the forgiveness that only he can give. So his hand is heavy on us until we surrender and until we come before him. And so David says, look, I know this. Remember, this is the one whose heart is after God. This is the one that God anointed as king when he was just a teenager. This is the one that God had saved throughout all those times when Saul was after him. And look what he says. Day and night, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then when I acknowledged my sin and I didn't cover it up, I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord. Why? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a great, you know, when you read that passage, you think about it. David knew what was going on. In fact, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me. And so therefore, come to him. But if you turn to Psalm 51, David gets even more clear about what he was going through. Psalm 51, he tells us he wrote this after he had gone into Bathsheba. That means he wrote this before he met with Nathan. He wrote this before he heard from Nathan the prophet. Immediately, he knew he had done wrong. And so he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You can imagine he left Bathsheba's bedchamber or she left his bedchamber. He's alone again. Remember, he's supposed to be with the troops. But no, he's alone He may be on the rooftop. He's walking about. And what does he say? Oh, Lord. He knew. Have mercy on me. He says, according to your love, not according to me. According to your absolute mercy, block out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my, cleanse me from my sin. Do something to take this away. And he goes on, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's done some terrible things. And he's very much aware of it. He says that you may be justified in your words. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin to my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth. You teach me wisdom. Purge me and I shall be whiter. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have given me that are broken, may they rejoice. His inner being is just topsy-turvy. It is twisted up inside. And he hurts bad. And he says, hide your face from my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressions. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will deliver your praise. Forgive me, oh God, is what David is saying. You know, when you think about all of that and this. And God forgives him. But know this. He doesn't take away the consequences. The Lord says to David, your house is now going to be a house of turmoil. Your house is going to be not a place of repose, but a place of great unrest. In fact, in the very next chapter, we're going to read about how his son, Abnon, will rape his daughter, Tamar. And then we're going to read about how Amnon, David's son, takes vengeance and kills, or, uh, and, and kills his son who had committed this rape. And then later, Absalom is going to lead a rebellion against him. Even some of David's counselors are going to rebel against David. And it will be Joab, his right-hand man, who's going to kill his son, Absalom. David's household is now topsy-turvy. Let me say this, too. David, when he commits adultery was 50 years old. He's not 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 or 40. He's now reigned in Israel for 20 years. He's 50. He'll die in 20 years. And for the remainder of his life, from this point on, it's a downward spiral of his career. The word here for us, I think, is a very simple one as we sort of analyze this. It is, we can't hide anything from God. So we ought to come clean with him. It doesn't mean we have to confess our sin to everybody and everything. Although David did. If you read that section, I didn't read it. But God said, your sin is going to be made public. It will be made known. And here we are in the 21st century, still talking about his sin. But they knew it in his kingdom. Joab knew, as I said. He knew what was going on. And it becomes a public, documented reality for their king. Fortunately, we can be spared such embarrassment, but David wasn't. But David wasn't spared consequences from our actions. And neither are we. The wages of sin is death. Not just one day we will all die. But our life becomes deafness. Our life loses its vitality, its life. Our life begins to lose its purpose and meaning. And David's life begins to lose all of those things, even to the point. But listen, this is serious business, isn't it? Because it is our sin that separates us from God. You know, Rosie may have something there. You know, the evil one doesn't like us thinking about that which separates us from God. And he doesn't like us thinking about what it is that unites us to God. It's the grace of God. He loves you. And he does not want to call attention to our sin. But he does want his son to bear it. And he does delight in forgiving it. And he does rejoice when we are cleansed from it. 
But it requires a returning to him, a going to him, a coming before him. It involves a confessing of such things. And that's why John writes, if we confess, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And one day we will stand before him whiter than snow, right? One day all this is past. And one day we will not only have the penalty of sin removed from us, which we already have, not only will we have the, uh, let's say, the power of sin removed from us, but we will have the very presence of sin removed from us as the east is from the west. And we will stand before him for all of eternity, whiter than snow, because we will be clothed as we already have begun to become clothed in the righteousness of our Messiah. So let's pray. While I'm praying, the worship team can come. The ushers can come forward. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. We thank you that David was such a man that when his sin was exposed... He was ready to confess it, to acknowledge it, and to bring it before you. For sure, he needed one to help him do that. And sometimes we all need the help of others in order to bring our sin to you. But Lord, may we not delay. For the longer we delay, the more our bones wax away. The more our heart grows hard. The more the pain and guilt gnaw at our innermost being. Spare us that pain, O Lord, and restore unto us the joy of the salvation you've provided for us. And of course, our greatest sin is the failure to acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah. Our greatest sin, and not the things that we do that are contrary to your character, but the one whom we do not regard as we ought the Messiah of Israel, who's given his life a ransom for many. May we not delay in failing to come to him and asking that he forgive us of our sin and that he cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We thank you, Lord, that you are a great blessing, a great joy, and and you provide a great salvation. We present ourselves before you as ones in great need, like David of old. And we pray, Father, that we would come. And in coming, we would remember you are the God of all creation. Blessed is your name for what you have done and for what you have provided. We bless you, Lord, for we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.